The reading this evening is taken from Philippians chapter 2 and beginning at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. For everyone looks out for their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me, and I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, co-worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. So then, welcome him in the Lord with great joy and honour people like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Thank you, Liz. Well, good evening, everyone. Great to be together. Um, do keep that passage open. We're going to flick to a couple of other places later on, but we'll stay in Philippians most of tonight. Um, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we need your help to understand what's going on in this passage. But more than that, we need your help that we might be a church that puts it into practice. So please would you speak into our hearts. Please would you warm our hearts and encourage us that we might be sent from here to be more effective and joyful witnesses for you. Amen. Great, well if you're uh, joining us or if you've already been here, we're number three of six in Philippians. Um, I hope you're enjoying this series. Um, I'm going to sort of repeat a few things, particularly at the beginning of each week, uh, deliberately, because I don't want us just at the end of this series to have kind of understood, I hope, something better of each of the passages, but also to kind of get a sense of how the whole letter holds together. Uh, these letters were written to be read in a church, uh, top to bottom. And so although we can break them down and look at different components of them, to get a kind of overarching sense of what's going on, 
and Paul's heart as he speaks to this church he loves for will really help us. Um, so can you remember the, back to the first week, Paul writes to this church in Philippi in northern Greece and he, he talks about uh, them and their identity. And we thought a bit about identity, didn't we? This idea of our identity is not something that we earn for ourselves but is a gift that God gives. And because it's a gift God gives, we're called to live a life of selfless identity uh, rooted in who God is. Uh, we looked at a couple of sort of crucial verses, and I'll keep repeating them. Do you remember chapter 1, verse 6? He's begun a good work in you, and he will bring it through to completion. There was that sense of the deliberate action of almost planting spiritual life in you if you've trusted in Christ. And as he's begun a good work, he promises to one day complete that. And we've thought a bit about chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel. And last week, I suggested that that word whatever is a very strong word and has consequences. Whatever happens, he's begun a work, he's going to complete a work. And kind of whatever happens along the way, all the lumps and bumps and struggles of life, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. But last week, we thought about the fact that that whatever will have consequences for all of us. And so we looked at that wonderful passage. Do you remember in chapter 2? The living God came and inhabited earth in the person of Jesus, took on flesh, Emmanuel, at that great act of humility in becoming like us. And we thought about humility of Christ, humility in suffering and also humility in serving. And as we reflected on all that Jesus did, I, I said, I hope that the depth of the cross that we looked at last week gives us more of a sense of what Paul means when he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. Think about everything Jesus has done for you uh, and then live in light of it. And remember last week as we thought about the Lord Jesus dying on a cross, we said, look at that incredible example of selfless humility. But I warned us, be careful. Let's not just look at Jesus as an example for us, though he is an example, um, the perfect example. He's more than that. He's more than just an example of humility. It's his humility that took him to the cross to win for you and me our life. So Jesus, yes, is an example, but he's also a saviour. He's never just an example. And today we're going to be thinking about being witnesses. It's interesting, isn't it, that as Paul writes to this church, his focus in the first couple of chapters has been primarily on our posture before God. Before he gets to the passage today that's going to begin to talk about activity for him. Sometimes we can be very focused on our activity for God, but we bypass our posture before him. And so it's interesting that Paul doesn't get to this chapter where he starts talking about being a witness until he's first reminded these Christians who they are, who they belong to, and the attitude of their heart. I think that's quite significant. And then he begins this section with a reminder of the relationship. Do you see it there? Dear, uh, therefore, my dear friends, your translation might say uh, beloved. There's this deep affection that Paul has for this church. Uh, just in the same way as you saw back in chapter 1, verse 8, uh, you see how I long for you with the affection of Christ. So this man, Paul, who's in prison, has a deep, deep affection for the people he's writing to. And then he says something that might puzzle us slightly, and you're going to work on this a moment uh, in, a, in pairs, just for a moment or two. Come to verses 12 to 13. He says, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence when he first met them, but now much more in my absence... Continue to work out your salvation. It's a puzzling phrase, isn't it? Before I kind of try to help us to understand what that means, I'd love you to turn to someone next to you or just sit quietly if that's how you think better. Just reflect on that little phrase. 
What do you think Paul is saying? And what kind of questions does it raise in your mind? I'd love you just to do a little bit of work before I come and help you. Just give you a couple of minutes to reflect. And please do chat if you want to. Right, that'll do. That's enough brain ache for a Sunday evening. <laughs> it's a funny phrase, though, isn't it? Continue to work out your salvation. Let's start with definitely what it doesn't mean. It definitely isn't speaking about Paul suggesting that in some way we earn our salvation, kind of work out your salvation. It's definitely not talking about that. And we'll see that next week, because next week Paul kind of presents his kind of religious CV and goes, this is everything I prided myself on in the past as a religious Pharisee, but that's nothing. The gospel saved me. So Paul here isn't saying work out your salvation in the sense of kind of figure it out, get right with God through what you do. Chapter 3 makes that super clear. I think instead it's the sense of this call to persevere to the finish line and to keep running well. He's begun a good work in you. He will complete it. But there's a life to live in between. And it's not a life where we just sit back and go... God's in control and, and, and everything will happen. We still need to work. We still need to act. Not work for our salvation. But there's a sense in which we, by God's grace, and we'll come to that, need to persevere in trusting in him. And you see, why is that important? Go back to chapter 1. Notice what Paul has said last week. Chapter 1, verses 28 to 29. He'd used that language, you remember, of contending for the gospel. Uh, he talked about um, standing firm and so that you won't be frightened by those who oppose you. So there is a sense in which the Christian life is a challenge, and Paul's calling us to persevere. But as you persevere as a follower of Jesus, here's a really important question that gets to the real heart of where Paul's going with this passage. Questions on the screen. I want to ask you, is the welfare of your soul the thing of greatest importance to you? And it's a challenging question because that is not a question that you would be, it would be normal to be asked. And that's certainly not a question that most people in the world answer. And if they could answer it, they'd go, no way. What do you mean the welfare of my soul? But that is really what Paul is getting at. Because, you see, for Paul, salvation is not just a destination to end up in. We sometimes can think of, I've put my trust in Jesus, he's forgiven me, he's going to get me to heaven. It's kind of like a passport. And sometimes we can think of salvation simply as a future thing, though it is a future guarantee because of what Christ has done for us. But the salvation that Christ has won on the cross that sort of is ahead of us in a sense, casts this incredible shadow back. And so it's just as it's a future thing, it's also a present thing which you, if you've trusted in Christ, possess now by the grace of God. And this salvation he's won for you is something he wants you to explore Something he wants you to enjoy. Something he wants to, you to continue to marvel at and be captured by for the rest of your life. Salvation is not a commodity that Jesus has bought which he gives you. Rather like I could buy some sweets and hand them to you. Salvation ultimately, eternal life, and you see this in John's gospel, is Jesus. So when you think of salvation, you think eternal life, you think Jesus And Jesus is not just one whom you'll be with for eternity in heaven, in this perfect relationship, but he knows you now, and he wants you to grow to know him better now. And so a second question I think that would flow from this first one is ask yourself this, are you spiritually hungry? That's good, Len. Are you spiritually hungry? I'm glad you are. And we need to be spiritually hungry. 
I forget the scripture off the top of my head, but in the Uncomfortable series, one of the scriptures I quoted from the Old Testament, God said this, Open wide your mouth and I will fill it. But if you and I don't have a mouth that is spiritually open, it can't be filled. And I think that gets to the heart in a sense of what Paul is talking about when he says continue to work out your salvation. It's this sense of longing to know God more deeply. To be more full of him and his spirit. To understand and marvel as we go through life the depths of the love that he has for us. And to persevere in trusting in what he has done for us. Because it's his work. He's begun it. He will complete it. He's the one who will carry us to eternity. His grip on you is much stronger than your grip on him. And his grip on me. Which is a good thing. And yet he's calling us to remain spiritually alive. And to be spiritually hungry. And so that phrase there, work out your salvation. It's an expression of a kind of working thoroughly at the state of your soul. Or to put it another way, Paul's sort of saying, listen, don't do something about the state of your soul every now and then when you've got time. If your soul care is the hour or two hours or whatever it is on a Sunday when you come to church and that's the only spiritual input you get in a week, you're going to be spiritually poor for it. Paul is saying, work out your salvation do you have a hunger to know me more deeply and all that Christ has done for you? You see, remember how the letter began, chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ. This man, Paul, is so captivated with the love that Jesus has for him. Everything revolves around that. You can't compartmentalize the Christian bit and the rest of your life. Paul says, you cut me anywhere, in half, across, you'll see Jesus. We're servants of Jesus. And that's why chapter 1, verse 27 is so crucial. Whatever happens in life, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel. And friends, we'll only be able to do that if, as it were, spiritually speaking, if someone was to cut us in half, we would bleed Jesus. So we need to constantly be asking ourselves and each other, is the welfare of our soul the thing that matters the very most? And if it is, then we need to be praying for each other that we would grow in our spiritual hunger. And I think that's what me, um, the sense of what, what Paul's saying when he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. It's that sense of humility, awe and reverence before God. God is not a containable God whom we can get a measure of. He's an all-consuming fire. And if we come before him daily with this fear and trembling, that is how we will look after our souls. And then we read this note to notice verse 13. Just as we're to work out our salvation, we see this wonderful truth. For it is God who works in you. It's quite puzzling, isn't it? We're called to work and then we hear, but God's at work. But what is God at work doing? He is at work by his grace in inclining our hearts, in changing our hearts, that we might will and act according to his good purpose. It's wonderful, isn't it, that the living God works in our hearts, not just to act in a way that honors him, but he works on our wills too, because our wills shape what we do, our actions, and our actions reinforce our will. And the living God is at work in both. I did a bit of digging around, and that word works in verse 13, the word that God does in us, is the word from which we get our word energy. And it's the sense of a kind of deliberate purpose. In other words, God, who's this kind of master potter, is deliberately at work in his children just as he deliberately begins that good work and deliberately one day will complete that good work he's at work all the time in our life 
to achieve his good purpose. And I love the fact that there's this kind of spiritual energy that God has at which he is at work on your soul and on mine. And he says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Try and remind yourself, what is God's good purpose for you? Go back to chapter 1 and have a read of verses 9 to 11. Remember what Paul says? This is my prayer for you, Philippians. In other words, he's in prison. He says, if I could say one thing to you, if I could pray one prayer for you, dear church in Philippi, this is my prayer, that your love might abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight so that you're able to discern what is best. Your love for Christ, your love for each other, your love for the God who has rescued you. Let that abound. It's this sense of kind of overflowing. You know when a child jumps into a bath and the water just goes everywhere. His prayer is that your love for Jesus would be like a baby jumping into a bath. And the water goes everywhere. I pray that your love would abound more and more in knowledge and depth of purpose so that you may be able to discern what is best, may be pure and blameless, that's a growth in godliness, filled with the fruit of righteousness. And we looked at all of it to the glory and praise of God. That's his good purpose. That your life in the whatever, whether it's joyful moments or great hardship, God's goal is that you bring glory to him. And wonderfully, God can bring glory to himself through the joys of our lives and through the challenges of our lives. Because he's the great potter. God is the great potter. I'm not very good at pottery. I've only done it once, maybe twice, when I was a little boy at school. And all I can remember is getting covered in clay, clay going everywhere. And as the wheels sped up, everything just flopped and was a bit of a mess. And I think my teacher had to pick it all up and try and make something out of it. I'm not a good potter. The living God is a wonderful potter. Because he puts you and I, he puts the church in his hands and he molds us to become the people he wants us to be. He's begun a good work in us. He will complete it. Chapter 1, verse 6. Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. And then chapter 2, verses 12 to 13. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act according to his good purpose. And if you want to summarize all of that in something super simple and visual, it's the picture on the screen. God is the potter. You are the clay. I am the clay. And what is he doing? He's molding us into something utterly beautiful. And so actually, when you strip everything away, God's goal for our life is that we would bring glory to Jesus Christ and prepare us for eternity. That's his goal. So often that's so different to the goal of my life. But it ought not to be. What about you? But maybe you're asking, well, what has this all got to do with witnessing? Because the theme of tonight is witnessing, and this whole section here is about this work of pottery, the clay in the hands of the potter. A few pictures on the screen. No trick questions here. What is that? Apple. Very good. We're on fire tonight. What are they? Apples. Great. There's nothing, no no trickery here. Just keep going. What's that? It's a sweet. What are they? Sweet. You got the idea. What's that? Person. People, okay? I think often we think of the Christian life a bit like the images on the left. It's me with God. 
But the whole point of the New Testament and the letters is that there's meant to be this corporate sense. It's not me and God, it's us and God. And so everything we've read, this idea of the potter and the clay, the clay is not just you or just me, it's us. We, the church, are in the hands of the great potter. And rather than seeing the things on the left as me and God, we ought to see everything we're thinking about in a corporate sense. What is God doing in us and for us? Spiritual life is corporate. Now, why does that really matter? It matters because you come to verse 14, and there seems to be this apparent shift. Paul then says to the gathered church, do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. He's not talking to one person there. He's talking to the church, the gathered church. And he's using an expression there, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Because that was a phrase that was used back in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament to describe the people of God who became wayward, who failed to be whom God created them to be. And this is where the whole witnessing thing is going to begin to come together. Here's a question for you. Why is what we are as a church so, so important? Well, verse 15 tells us, It's so important because then you, plural, the church, will shine among them. Who's the them? It's the world, the warped and crooked generation. You, the church, will shine among them like what? Stars in the sky. Have you ever seen a a star shining brightly in the darkness? It shines brightly on the backdrop of the darkness. The star is what is bright and your eye is drawn to. But if the, shine wasn't, if the star wasn't shining, you wouldn't see it. And the whole purpose of the church is that we shine. And how do we shine, verse 16, do you see there? As we hold firmly to the word of life. So let's just pause and try and work that through. The church here is described as light. And light is a beautiful picture, isn't it, of something that does what it does by being what it is. Think about that. Light does what it does by being what it is. Just like you take a hammer. A hammer is a hammer because it hammers nails. It does what it does by being what it is. So too with light. It does what it does by being what it is. If a light doesn't shine, it's not a light. But when a light shines, it is a light. And that was what it was created for. And in a similar way... The church does what it does by being what it is. So the question is, what is the church? The church does what it does by being what it is. And we read here that we as a church are to shine among them, the warped and crooked generation, the godless generation who've forgotten the living God. How? As we shine like stars by holding firmly to the word of life. And that phrase, hold firmly, can mean two things. It can mean holding on to and it can mean holding forth so think about the living God we talked about God being the sort of potter in in whose hands are the clay think of the living God now as holding a, a torch or a light he holds on to the light and he holds forth the light isn't that exactly what the church ought to be I think Paul uses this phrase that can mean holding on to or holding forth because that's exactly what he means here The church shines amongst a godless world like stars in the sky as it holds on to and as it holds forth the word of life. 
And then he goes on to say, and then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain. Here's a question for you. What would have led Paul to have labored in vain for the Philippians? Answer, if the church, the Philippian church, ceased to be a light. You could say of one of the pastors of a church, what would lead us to labor and run in vain as we seek to serve the church? It would be at the end of our ministry, if the church is not a witnessing church. And actually it's a failure of us all. The church is not the church if it's not a light, in the same way that a light is not a light if it's not shining. And that's what Paul is driving to here. Uh, you'll know this passage, but why don't you just keep your finger in Philippians, please, and just flick back to Matthew chapter 5. Uh, well-known passage from the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is speaking to his close disciples, and then the, the gathered crowd are listening in. We know, don't we, from John's Gospel, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. But here, do you see in Matthew chapter 5, verse 14, you are the light of the world. The light of the world speaks to the church and says, you are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden, neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Paul would have labored in vain if the church that he planted stopped being a witnessing church because that was the purpose of the church rather like if you have a torch and it never shines there's no really point having a torch is there because the whole point of a torch is it shines in the darkness the whole point of a star is it shines in the darkness the whole point of the church is that it shines in the darkness Uh, Matthew Henry is a great scholar, no longer alive, but a great scholar and a great pastor said this. When God raises up a faithful person in any place, he sets up a light in that place. Isn't that a lovely phrase? I'd like to nick that phrase and make it my own, but make it more corporate. Here's my phrase. I'm never going to write a commentary like Matthew Henry because his is like this big. He's written a commentary in the whole Bible. But here's a line I'd like to put in a commentary. When God raises up a faithful church in any place, he sets up a light in that place. And so as we continue to think about what is the purpose of Long Crendon Baptist Church here, we must think of this church in the context of being a light. In any conversations we have in the future about planting another church or helping to revive a struggling church, it must be exactly the same thing. We plant a church so that in that place there is a light set up. Or we revive a struggling church so that place begins to shine brightly again, perhaps like it once did. When God raises up a faithful church in any place, he sets up a light in that place. Beautiful picture, isn't it? And that's what Paul's saying. He's saying, look, I'm in prison. I can't be with you. I want to encourage you. Hey, but while I'm not with you, just make sure you shine. Shine for your suffering. Shine for your joys. Just shine. Because that's what you are. And that's what we ought to be. And so there is a challenge in this passage. And here's the challenge, the sort of exhortation. I give it to you and I give it to myself, verse 12. We must keep on witnessing as a church. We must. And that's why I asked that question at the beginning. Is the welfare of your soul the thing of greatest importance to you? Because if it is, that is what will spur you on 
to want to win other souls for Christ. Because you realize that your soul is the thing that matters. Your soul is the thing that you'll take with you when you depart this earth. Nothing else. And when your soul matters to you, other people's souls will matter to you. When we get caught up in the things of this world and our soul is no longer important to us, that's why we stop being a witness. Because other stuff matters more. And so there is a sense in which you and I need to respond. We need to work out our salvation. And part of what it means to work out our salvation is to ensure that our own hearts and the hearts of each other come together to make sure this church continues to be a light. But... There's no great encouragement that verse 13 comes with verse 12. Yes, exhortation, we must keep going as a witnessing church. But here's the awesome encouragement. We will be kept going as a witnessing church. If it was just down to us, or down to your pastors to encourage you to be this thing, we'd all fail because of the state of our hearts. But wonderfully, when God calls us to be a light, God is the one who continues to put fuel in the fire to enable us to be that light Yes, verse 12, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. But don't forget verse 13. For it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his great purpose. And then just to close, the way that Paul then structures what he writes. Do you see verse 19 onwards? He gives us two wonderful examples of people who are dear to his heart who prove this glorious truth. Here are two men who keep going in their witness but equally here are two men who are kept going in their witness and they're models for us the first one is timothy you see there verse 19 who paul hopes in the lord to see soon to send soon timothy who was identified in in chapter 1 verse 1 i hope in the lord jesus to send timothy to you soon that i also may be cheered when i receive news about you and this is what he says about timothy i have no one else like him who will show genuine concern for your welfare. Everyone looks out to their own interests, not to those of Jesus Christ. But no, Timothy was a wonderful example of what we looked at last week. Let your attitude be like that of Christ Jesus. Verse 22, But you know that Timothy has proved himself, because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. Here's a man who has continued to work out his salvation with fear and trembling. He's continued to live the Christian life. He's followed the example of Christ. He's followed the example of Paul. And he now has this longing to be with this church in Philippi to encourage their souls. What a wonderful example of someone who keeps going as a witness, but is also kept going as a witness. And then verse 25, the second example is this guy, Epaphroditus. My brother my co-worker and my fellow soldier. And it's astonishing to read this because we'll look at it a bit next week. When you think of where Paul's come from, Paul was a Pharisee. He was a religious Jew and he hated the Gentiles. He would have called the Gentiles dogs, derogatory term. But he speaks here of a dog, not as a dog, but as a brother, a co-worker and a soldier. It's wonderful, a wonderful picture of what the gospel can do, bringing together people who are very different and making them very dear. I wonder if you look at, around the room at each other, can you say of each other, you're my brother, my sister, you're my co-worker. It's not just me and God and I'll serve him in my little way. You're my co-worker. We're going to work together. 
I'm going to encourage you, you're going to encourage me. And guess what? We'll get in the trenches together sometime. You're my fellow soldier too. Not because you look impressive, because you're big and you've got big muscles and big armor. You're my fellow soldier because Christ is in you and he's in me. It's a lovely picture, isn't it? And when you'll read, who is also your messenger whom you sent to take care of my needs. We're going to see it in chapter 4, but chapter 4, verse 18, uh, this guy, Epaphroditus, brings a gift to Paul in prison. But the astonishing thing about the context is that he comes in a way that costs him. Look at verse 29. Paul says to the church, welcome this guy, Epaphroditus, with great joy and honor people like him. Why? Because he almost died for the work of Christ. He risked his life to make up for the help you yourselves could not give me. Epaphroditus had a life-threatening illness. First century, if you got ill, you basically died. And with his illness, he then traveled. Dangerous, life-threatening. But why did he do it? Because he wanted to get to Paul with this gift from the church that was so dear to Paul and Paul was so dear to them. We talked last week, didn't we, about suffering with great humility and serving with great humility. There's Epaphroditus. A great servant. Here's a man who works out his salvation with fear and trembling. For Timothy, it was about being this model disciple or apprentice for Paul. For Epaphroditus, it was about that real cost, risking everything for the souls of these people in Philippi and for Paul himself. I thank God that if I look around the church, there's loads of Timothys. There's loads of Epaphrodituses. Men and women who are these examples by God's grace. People who... Keep going in their witness, but more importantly, people who are kept going in their witness by the grace of God. And so if you were to summarize this whole little section we've looked at together, friends, know this, the great potter, the living God is at work. And he's at work, his work is to build a witnessing church. And what is the purpose of a witnessing church? It's to prepare people's souls for eternity strip it all away that's what it's about there's a divine potter working in your heart and in mine to make something beautiful out of the ugliness of our lives and through it to prepare us and to prepare a world to spend eternity with him and that's why as a church we need to keep our eyes fixed on the cross because it was Christ's humility which was the means through which this work began He died on a cross so that God could plant that seed of faith in your heart. But it's the resurrection, the glory of Christ, where we ended up last week, that is assurance of all that's to come. Because death is not the end, because Christ rose again. And that is why next week, after Paul said all that he said, you notice how chapter 3 begins? Paul can't help but begin the next sentence with the word rejoice in the Lord. Because he's so captivated by all that Christ has done for him. And when we get as captivated as Paul is by all that Christ has done for us, it will be each other's souls that are the one thing that matter to each of us the very most. And so friends, whatever we do, let's guard each other's souls. Let's keep pointing each other to our Savior. And let's trust that what he has begun, this great potter, he will complete. And I'll do it with a little block of clay that doesn't look very impressive that often will just fall on the floor in a mess but he will pick it up and he will shape it into something beautiful and that's what he's doing in us and it's a mystery and it's remarkable isn't it but that's what the church is
Shall we pray together? Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And then I will be able to boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor in vain.